Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we find out how to keep misinformation off the menu at your Thanksgiving gathering with family and friends this year, and some tips on how to counter claims that just aren't based in fact. And with more of us flying again, we speak to an etiquette expert and former flight attendant about proper plane behavior. It seems some of us have forgot how to behave in the skies. It was 60 years ago this week that the very first James Bond movie was released, Dr. No, and we speak with a Bond aficionado with the lasting legacy of that movie and find out what they consider the best of the Bond franchise. We meet the author of a new biography of the late celebrity chef, author, and TV star Anthony Bourdain called Down and Out in Paradise. It uses interviews with more than 80 people as well as Bourdain's emails and text messages to piece together the many chapters of his life right through the tumultuous final years before he took his own life in 2018. But first, Alberta's MVP leader and former Premier Rachel Notley joins me to talk about her new rival, Danielle Smith, the new leader of the United Conservative Party and the province's 19th Premier. Notley says Smith's win will mean more chaos, cost, and conflict in her province. We find out why. Day one for the new leader of Alberta's United Conservative Party saw Danielle Smith emerge uh, from the first meeting with her party caucus with a message of unity that always happens when a new leader is put in place. Smith won the race to become the UCP leader and the next premier of Alberta last night with 53.77% of the vote of some 80,000 UCP members, not the whole province, just 80,000 UCP members, beating out former finance minister Travis Taves, who was in second place with about 47%. It went the full six rounds, by the way. It was a... um, a pretty tight one. The same two front runners all the way through, but a pretty tight race all in all. Uh, Smith will be sworn in uh, on Tuesday, but as the result last night shows, she will face challenges keeping the party true to its name. In other words, united. Um, and the centerpiece of her policy agenda is going to be a battle as well. It's something called the Alberta Sovereignty Act that would, in theory, allow the province to ignore federal laws and court orders deemed not in its interests. Smith sat down with Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block Mercedes Stevenson today. Here's some of that. We are Ottawa's target and have been. The the gravest disappointment that I had after Alberta gave an equalization referendum and a mandate for us to renegotiate the relationship with Canada. The first thing that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau did is appoint Environment Minister Stephen Gibault, who has done nothing but attack our industry since he's been in that position. And now he's expanded to attacking our food producers. I think that that was exactly the wrong message for Ottawa to send to us. And so we are going to make sure that we push back against their invasion of our jurisdiction, which they do all the time. You can see the rest of that interview Sunday at 10 a.m. Pacific noon Eastern with Mercedes Stevenson on the West Block. In her accepted speech last night, Danielle Smith took aim at Ottawa. No longer will Alberta ask permission from Ottawa to be prosperous and free. We will not have our voices silenced and censored. We will not be told what we must put in our bodies in order to work or to travel. Danielle Smith last night, she also defended her sovereignty act and took aim at the NDP, her rivals in Alberta. Many in the Notley Singh Trudeau Alliance will claim that my plan to stand up to Ottawa with the Sovereignty Act is somehow meant to move Alberta toward leaving our beloved Canada. That is a lie. Well, joining me now is Alberta NDP leader and former Premier Rachel Notley. Thank you so much for your time on this Friday. It's a pleasure to be with you. That's a lie. That's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, stark statement. What do you make of it? 
Well, I, I mean, to be quite honest, I, I don't know that our primary critique, critique of, of, of her so-called Sovereignty Act is that we're trying, she's trying to move us to separatism. I think the, the bigger critique is, is simply that um, she is uh, basically lying to most of her supporters about what she actually has the authority to do. Uh, the act itself would be unconstitutional and illegal. And, and the, the specter of having the premier of Alberta attempt to engage in something that's so clearly unconstitutional and illegal and, and rejecting the rule of law would create a, just an incredible amount of investor uncertainty in the province and and it would it would create chaos in our economy and and we don't have the economy that can withstand that i mean things are looking up right now but you have to remember that alberta had the worst economic um, experience during covid of any province and so even though we're coming back now the fact is you know we're seeing wage growth in alberta is the slowest in the country and and our recovery is fragile and we don't need um wacky ideas like this uh, from a premier who, who's decided that she can write the laws and that the courts are irrelevant um, to, to drive away um, the kind of investment that, that Albertans need to see in order to have the kind of long-term uh, sustainable jobs that, that uh, they're all hoping for. Yeah, and you've pointed out that, um, that this is quite, uh, quite the step for, for a new premier whose mandate really came from a small fraction of the party, certainly not... Um the people of Alberta in general. Mm-hmm. No, and, and indeed that is that is another point. I mean, she she absolutely doesn't have a mandate to to engage in something so uh, sweeping and and so consequential, um, and um, and and certainly she she barely has it from her own party. To be quite honest, I mean, it was a a, a very slim victory, sixth ballot victory for heaven's sakes, and um, and um, so there was clearly people that were voting against her right up to the very end, quite a significant number of them. So the party, to be clear, is not united. And, uh, and, but more to the point, uh, she just has not uh, put these wacky ideas to the people of Alberta um, for them to weigh in. Uh, she has been spent the last four months campaigning to a very extreme 1% of the population. And she's been ignoring the, the dominant views of the mainstream of Alberta, which quite frankly uh, doesn't reflect what you're hearing Danielle Smith talk about uh, last night or today. Yeah, but although um, in part of what she's saying, she seems to she does capture a certain aspect of the frustration with Ottawa, the frustration mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. the way Alberta is treated within within the constitution. And I would imagine if you're going to say that her idea is is wacky, you're going to have to come up with something to quell some of that anger that is equally that is that is you know uh, adversely unwacky. What what do you have in mind? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and and fair fair comment, and I I think we need to distinguish between folks who are angry um, in a way that 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 is unresolvable, and folks who are frustrated for good reason. And and I quite th- I think she's been mostly speaking to the former um, for the last little while. Um, let me say without question, I think any premier doesn't matter what party they represent when they get elected to lead Alberta, they must put Alberta's interests first. And 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 I believe that that I've done that in the past. I mean, we are uh, less than a year away from getting the first pipeline to Tidewater built um, in, uh, in in over 50 years 
from Alberta. And that is something that uh, is happening because as the Premier of Alberta, I fought for Albertans, sometimes coming up against people in my own party, certainly coming up against uh, uh, the federal government at times, and uh, but did that because it was the best thing for Albertans. And so every Albertan deserves to have that in a Premier. But they also deserve a Premier who is going to stick up for Alberta in a way that will get real results. For the last three and a half years, we've seen uh, Jason Kenney create a, a, a war room which has done nothing but, but embarrass the province and, and undermine our ability to be, to be engaged as, as actual players and negotiators at a table. Um, and, uh, you know, so we haven't seen actual um, results. And so um, it is, I think, responsible leadership for a premier to say, I'm going to do things that are realistic and achievable to get the best outcome for, for Albertans. I'm not going to promise you a magical uh, a bag of, of magic beans uh, that, in fact, uh, mean nothing. And that's what she's doing right now. Um it feels like in this case, though, and I remember the the wine ban. I mean, I'm in BC, so I remember I remember those those <laughs> dealings with Joe between you and John Horgan. It was, uh, you know, it was it was it was tough, right? It was it was it was tough at the yeah. time, but there is, you know, I, I just get the sense that um, from a lot of what we've been hearing coming out of this. UCP leadership race is that there is a growing mm-hmm. frustration in with with the federal government, and there is a frustration with um, the deal that was reached between the federal NDP and the federal Liberals. Is that going to hurt you? Do you think? Are, are you? Do you feel like you're 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 trying to fight a two front battle here against both your opposition and against your own party in Ottawa? Um, you know, I think. Listen, there there are things that that I agree with. Um, um, are the NDP federal leader on like like pharmacare, like dental care, like ensuring that we do better with respect to healthcare? I agree uh, a great deal with them on that. I don't necessarily agree on uh, what is the responsible way to to ensure that working people continue to have um, sustainable mortgage paying jobs um, while ensuring uh, a responsible and achievable um, reduction in our emissions uh, at, that we do definitely need to to succeed on, and so we differ. Sure, we we differ on those issues, um, but honestly, I think. Here's what's happening in Alberta right now. Families are facing the biggest cost of living crisis that they have experienced in the last 40 years. And and those that that is being felt more in Alberta than in most other parts of the country. Our UCP government is actually piling onto that by by imposing additional costs onto families through a whole range of 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 measures whether it be utilities, insurance, tuition, taxes. They're 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 taking money out of the pockets of Albertans every day. Meanwhile, our healthcare system is in crisis, and yes, I understand that it's in crisis across the country, but it's worse in Alberta because even before COVID, uh, the UCP had uh, ripped up the agreement with doctors, threatened to fire thousands of nurses, cut funding in healthcare, and uh, and and um, uh, then told uh, healthcare staff that they needed to get ready for a 10% pay cut, and so. Um, we are now scrambling to try to provide basic health care service across our province. And this government is trying to distract from their failure by, by focusing on the federal government. And I think that most Albertans 
want a leader who will understand what their job is, look them honestly in the eye and say, here's what my job is, and then roll up their sleeves and do it with integrity. And that's something that we have not seen from the UC uh, in the last three and a half years. And Daniel Smith, if possible, is actually going to make that worse. Albertans want us to be unified. They want us to succeed. Albertans don't want to elect a socialist NDP government any more than they want to see the Toronto Maple Leafs win the Stanley Cup. Uh, the new UCP leader, Michelle Smith, in her acceptance speech last night. Our guest this half hour is NDP leader and former Alberta Premier Rachel Notley. Um, do you get the sense that this might be a bit of a personal battle? I mean, you've, you've been in politics. You know what it's like. Is it going to be – Is it? do you think it's going to be – a bit nasty. I mean, you're both very well-spoken. You're both very good communicators. It sounds like you could have a real battle on your hands just when it comes to the messaging and, and being out there and getting your points across. Well, you know, I, I don't know really so much, you know, whether I, I can't really comment on that. But yeah. what I will say for sure is that that uh, there are very, very important issues at play today and, and, and over the next six or seven months. And, and so there is no question that the intensity of the debate will, be, um, will, will reflect that. I mean, uh, you know, we, we have a, an education system where, where our children are being forced to, to learn from a curriculum that every single solitary education expert has said is, is flawed in, in multiple ways. Um, and then we've got a new leader on top of that in Daniel Smith, who's, who's talking about voucher systems and questioning whether we should even continue funding public education. So, so something is as critically important to families across Alberta as a world-class uh, public education system for their kids is on the ballot. Um, right. Same thing about our healthcare system. Uh, you know, she, she's talking about uh, uh, transitioning to an insurance style, a, a, a privately funded um, uh, healthcare system. And at the same time that she's telling people that that uh, you know, cancer care is up to them until they hit stage four. Um, and and so you know, those kinds of things are are really major issues that that make people pretty passionate and that that folks care about. So. I do think that that, along with with the the costs that they're piling on to to families' uh, bills at the end of every month, you know, it's going to make for for some pretty passionate debate. Um, and and Albertans themselves are are going to want to hear from folks on that. Yeah, but in her speech last night, she did you know she did talk about compassion. She did talk about helping people on the street. She did talk about the opioid crisis. She did touch on a lot of the things. I understand that her solutions are very different from yours, um, but it feels like she is talking about some of that stuff. I guess you're just going to have to fight it out on the uh, fight it out in the battle of ideas, which is always always beneficial. Um, what, do you, going into this, do you think the, do you think the ballot box question is ballot box question is really going to be inflation? It feels like that's the key. That's what you're going to have to work on over the next six months is convincing Albertans that you are best suited, your party is best suited to guide the economy and try to make sure that everyone is getting by. Mm-hmm. I, I think it will be definitely um, inflation and the, the affordability crisis that so many families are experiencing for sure. That's one. The other one that I think is as big is is healthcare. Um, the the scope of, of um, healthcare um, challenges across our province right now is is uh, very unnerving for people right now, and and so I think that's also uh, pretty front and center. 
Um, and, and so, yeah, I, th- I think those are, that's, that's completely reasonable. And, and I think Albertans would be, would be right to ask us to, to really show our work and, and, and to, to, to prove to them that we're not just doing rhetoric, that we actually have a plan and that, that we can be counted on to provide stable, responsible, uh, public service focused government that can actually uh, stick to a plan for, for a full term. And, and, and that's certainly what we're going to be offering to Albertans. Well, Rachel Dolly, I look forward to speaking to you again. I know it's going to be an interesting six months. It's certainly a very interesting campaign. I wish you a, a, a lovely long weekend. Thank you. You as well, and and, uh, happy Thanksgiving to all your listeners. All right, we started this hour uh, by getting you some plain tips, some advice on flying again. So now you've landed, you've arrived, you're at your family gathering, you're all there, family, friends, it's great. And somehow, somehow, politics or something comes up, something comes up that you probably don't want to be talking about at Thanksgiving dinner uh, as a matter of fact, you shouldn't be. That's one of, one of the pieces of, as of, pieces of advice you will be getting um, coming up here. Uh, but what if we get into those sensitive issues and it turns out um, that there's some misinformation going on, some fact-free claims going on around the table? This happens um, a lot, or at least occasionally, depending on the family, I suppose. Um, but it turns out the home is often the most important place to stop misinformation from spreading. It's not always easy to counter. So ahead of this holiday weekend, and this should stand you in good stead for the rest of the year too, I thought we could get some tips on how to confront something you know to be untrue and how to do it with a certain grace so you don't ruin the dinner. Here to help us with that is Emily Vraga. She's an associate professor in the Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota. Emily, thank you for your time. I'm delighted to be here. So as families gather, um, Normally, the conversation, we hope, stays relatively kind and calm, but sometimes it gets heated and political and um, misinformation comes up. And I gather I was reading this Washington Post article earlier. One of the things I found most fascinating was one of the nine rules is don't argue at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Yeah, the dinner table is a place for eating. It's sacred. (laughs) So when it comes to this sort of misinformation, uh, what should you do? Because there are ways to address... um, fact-free arguments, so to speak? I think the first thing to do is start from a place of love. I mean, that's what Thanksgiving's all about. You're gathering to be with the people you care most about. And so when you're responding to misinformation, you're doing so because you love that person and you want to protect them and make sure they have the best information possible to make good decisions. Uh, often I, I gather being inquisitive is important too, to to actually not dismiss what they're saying out of hand, but ask where they found, where they may have read that or where they may have seen that. Yeah, asking questions is a great way to hear about not just what they think, but why they think that and can give you some insight into what you might be able to offer that would be persuasive to them. Yeah, one of the arguments I always hear um, that's fascinating is what facts would I need to present to you for you to change your mind? So that seems like a good counter argument always. Yeah, and being open to learning new things yourself. Uh, Somebody could be starting with misinformation, but that doesn't mean that everything they say is completely not true. And so being able to be open and saying, wow, I didn't know that. I'll have to look for more information on that. And then offering more information yourself could be a way to make it a back and forth process and make it more okay to admit you don't know something or that you're wrong. Yeah, because you you don't want to laden people with facts, right? That doesn't often work. Um, As you mentioned earlier, the heart, not the head, right? Uh, And also, I guess, sorry, go ahead. 
it can't be just facts is what I would say. It doesn't mean you can't use them, but if you just say fact one, fact two, fact three, that's not really a conversation. It's a lecture and nobody likes that. No. And, and don't get personal either. I guess don't get emotional as part of the, uh, I mean, I get, you always, everyone's always a bit emotional in these things, but I, I guess don't, don't make it personal, right? If I don't make it personal, I would say you don't want to make it about their intelligence, make it about their values necessarily. It's about, in fact, respecting those um, and affirming their worldview while still pointing out gently the ways in which they're wrong. So you can be personal, but you can't be punitive. Yeah, and we we started off by talking about the Thanksgiving dinner table, but but I gather that the real approach here is not to have that argument in front of everybody, but to arrange to meet some other time or find another way to to talk to that person about what they've said or if you think it's a think it's a, a problem. So having a good long conversation separate from that kind of family-oriented approach is definitely a way to engage in this active listening and hearing what their concerns are, hearing where they're getting their information, and being able to respond and, and have a fruitful conversation. That being said, if somebody says something that's factually inaccurate to a large group of people, you can gently respond in the moment with what is true. You don't want other people to be left with the wrong impression that what they're saying is true or that there isn't another side to it. So if somebody says something at the dinner table that's that's flat out wrong, I might respond with, actually what I've heard from an authoritative source is this, I'd love to talk with you about this more, you know, after dessert. Yeah, because we started off with the premise that uh, that it's often around dinner tables like that or within close family circles or friendship circles that information sort of misinformation or disinformation uh, both both is spread and breeds. Yes, and I think it's important to recognize everybody has spread misinformation. Misinformation is just about being wrong, and we've all done that. So starting from a place of empathy and, and recognizing where confusion can occur uh, can be helpful as well as humbling. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, being willing to walk, be willing to walk away is another one as well. Like the, you don't want to go to the hilt on every argument, right? You have to be willing to sort of say, okay, I, I, I will agree to disagree. Yes, you cannot win every argument. Uh, you cannot always persuade someone that what they believe is wrong. So introducing them to new ideas, sharing where you're getting your information, and hopefully leaving them with questions is totally fine. You don't have to make it your goal to persuade everyone. You just have to make sure that they're aware of, of what you see as correct on the issue. Which is probably more polite than Googling at the table, because I have seen people do that. You know, you, everyone pulls out their phone and starts Googling, looking for the truth. Yeah, I, at the dinner table maybe isn't the best place to do that. That's another place where you can say, I've heard something different, but I would love to talk to you about this later. Or maybe together we can search for more information on this topic. Yeah, you don't want to sh you know sort of shove your phone and under them and say aha, <laughs> it's probably the wrong move at the dinner table. Changing minds, though, uh, as we know, if you think someone is um, is spreading misinformation, changing minds is a slow process uh, and 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 often one that changes both minds. You learn something, they learn something, and ultimately, I guess you hope you arrive at something like the truth. That's exactly correct. So how how long does it take? Why is that? Why does it take time? I guess people are. You mentioned it earlier. People are, are people's opinions and beliefs are, are very much locked into to them, and to attack the belief or the fact is to attack them. Sometimes, that's exactly right. That 
once we start believing something, we incorporate it into our perceptions of the world. And so changing our perception of the world, even in a, in a very small way, sometimes has implications for our bigger worldview. So we need to, to be patient and to be understanding and recognize that change doesn't happen overnight. To take a step away from the dinner table and the family gatherings and so on, when it comes to social media, there's a slightly different tact, I gather, which is to keep it short, right? To keep it concise. Yes, you want to keep it concise. And on social media, this is a, a place where it's especially important to recognize that there are actually two audiences for your correction. There's the person who's sharing the misinformation who is actually the hardest person to persuade. They were so committed and so convinced of the misinformation, they're sharing it. But what's even more important in some instances is the larger audience seeing that. And they're the ones you're thinking about as well as the person you're responding to, making sure that they have accurate information at their fingertips rather than being left with uh, inaccurate information. Is there a way to phrase things online that avoids um, escalating something into something unpleasant? I think you can still start from a place of love. You can still use empathy. So saying, I can see why this might be confusing, or I understand why you might have that perception, but here's what the latest scientific evidence is, or here's what I have learned most recently, and then providing evidence to back up that point. And what if you're dismissed out of hand as being, you know, often you see people simply being dismissed as as some you know, fill in the blank uh, adjective here. How do you how do you do that? Do you just walk away at that point and try again next time? That's another place where, again, you have to know when to walk away. If you have offered a good faith correction, if you have tried to be empathetic and they are not receptive in the moment, you can not continue the conversation. It's not going to to benefit either of you. And you can know that you left the the best information available for everyone seeing that interaction. Well, Emily Braga, thank you so much. This sounds like good advice, not only for our Thanksgiving, but for your Thanksgiving coming up in about uh, six weeks time and for after that. Uh, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. Well, we're going to tackle some Thanksgiving issues this uh, this hour for you. One of them, and I've been thinking about this a lot ever since, um, I've been on a few planes this year already. I've been away a couple of times. And uh, there's a few things you notice when you get back on a plane these days after really not flying at all for uh, a few years during the height of the pandemic. One, the seats are awfully close together and the aisles are awfully, like the rows are awfully tight. There's no leg room anymore. Um, Everyone has carry-on luggage now, lots of it, so it's become a bit of a fiasco when it comes to the overhead bins. And because people haven't spent that much time together in, with strangers in that kind of environment, close quarters to say the least, uh, we've kind of forgotten how to be pleasant with each other in those environments. Not all together, it's all pretty civilized, but it's not great. Um, so as we're heading into one of the busiest travel weekends of the year, Thanksgiving, um, not everyone's flying, of course, many people drive, but... I thought we would uh, try and get some tips on this. This idea actually comes from a story that I saw online, but an argument uh, that developed recently on a plane it was a 10-hour flight to Greece uh, when someone was approached by a woman. They had paid extra for their seat. Keep in mind, they paid extra for the seat to be closer to the front so they could get off quicker. Um, a woman came up to him and asked if they could have their seat because their family, the rest of their family, was sitting beside them, was sitting in that row. Uh, or the row right beside it. Her seat was about 20 rows back. And so the person in question who paid extra for the seat said, no, I'm not giving up my seat. I paid extra for this. I don't want to sit 20 rows back. 
And this turned into a bit of an online thing. This person then posted something on Reddit saying, was I in the wrong? Most people supported him for doing this, for, for not giving up the seat. Most people did. Uh, let me know what you think of that. 877-399-9898 is the text line. 877-399-9898. Do you always give up your seat to allow a family to sit together? I normally do. If I paid extra for it, I probably wouldn't. Uh, but maybe. It depends on the circumstances, right? Depends where the other seat was. And also, sometimes it just depends on how you're asked, right? Uh, but it got me thinking about the do's and don'ts while flying. And uh, again, wait times, smaller seats, tighter rows, lots of carry-on luggage, many of, us have, many of us out of practice. We wanted to get some advice. So joining me now is Jacqueline Whitmore. She's an international etiquette expert and founder of the Protocol School of Palm Beach. She's also author of Poised for Success and a former flight attendant. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, Ben. Well, I was flying again. I've been flying again this year for the first time in quite a long time. And uh, there are a lot of curious things going on in those tight spaces we call airplanes. Uh, and one of them is sort of, I, I realized this relearning on how to fly together in those confined areas um, and basic etiquette. Uh, what have you found? I mean, I imagine you've been flying as well. Have we forgotten how to how to be polite and kind to each other in those environments? Well, I think the seats are getting smaller and smaller, and the leg room is even much smaller. So that's what I noticed first and foremost when I got on a plane last week to Mississippi. But I was fortunate in that my, I had direct flights, and they were very short. So there wasn't a whole lot of time to meet, mingle, and to be um disturbed by the other passengers around me. However, I have to tell this real quick story. There, sure. there were two people behind me who were talking rather loudly. And as you know, on an airplane, voices carry. And they were having a conversation. They were clearly two strangers asking each other all sorts of questions. And after the plane took off and we reached a, a cruising altitude, I just went to the row, maybe three rows up, there, there was a whole row that was empty. And it was actually uh, in the, I guess you could call the seat category that I booked, the cheap seats, if right. you will. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yes. But it was a whole row that was available and I got up to move. And um, I, I know that there's been a lot written about that in the media, about people not being able to travel together for whatever reason, and they asked to move seats and so forth. But in this particular situation, it was okay, and no one said anything, and everything went very well. Yeah, what do you make of that? Because this was sort of the genesis of this story was this Reddit battle that happened online when a uh, someone sitting on their own was asked by a family to move because they wanted to sit together, but they had paid extra for this seat. And it was a long flight. And of course, what ended up happening is that he refused to leave. Um, and that caused some consternation. What's your take on the etiquette of if you paid for extra for that seat, should you give it up? Okay, so this is this is my thought. When you pay extra for a seat, you pay for a reason, whether it be extra leg room or maybe you just want to get some work done or you just want to be closer to the front because you want to deplane quicker. So if someone asks me, may I switch seats with you? And it's still in the same seat category and still in the same type of seat I booked. For example, I love the aisle seat for that very reason, so I can get in and out quicker, I probably wouldn't have 
um, a problem with that. But in this particular situation that you're referring to, this man was traveling for 10 hours. It was an international flight. And there was um, a father and two children. Uh, I think it was across from him or in the same section. And the mother, who was sitting 20 rows back, wanted to be moved up with her family. So my advice is this, when that happens, it's best to do it before you get on the airplane. It's something that you can ask for when you are um, at the ticket counter. It's something you can request when you are uh, pre-boarding, getting ready to board. It's something you can ask the flight attendant, but to put a particular passenger in that situation is very uncomfortable. So in that case, I feel that she was wanting to move from a lesser um, seat to a more expensive seat. And he clearly paid for that seat. So I don't blame him for not wanting to give it up. Yeah, that's a good point that you shouldn't really put the onus of that decision on the person who paid for the seat. You should ask the airline if they can accommodate you. I would imagine that that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It does. And it happens all the time. I used to be a flight attendant back in the 90s, 1992. I worked for Northwest Airlines. And we used to uh, hear these requests all the time. And of course, flying was a lot different back then than it is now. Planes are packed. They are so packed now that there really isn't much opportunity to move at all. And so if, if you know you're going to be seated away from your family, you can even call ahead. You can call the reservation number and see if there have been any cancellations. Maybe you could be put on a wait list or something. But to ask someone, I, I mean, like I said, there are extenuating circumstances and etiquette is situational. But this was clearly something that I think could have been handled. It could have been taken care of way ahead of time. Yeah, I mean, you raise a good point. I guess there are a lot of little things that as even in your brief time in, in that situation, there are a lot of little things that passengers should know that are accommodatable uh, if asked for in a certain way. Yes, yes. And how the mother ended up in the back and the rest of the family ended up in the front was probably no accident. Maybe they wanted to save a few dollars and they hoped for the best when they got to the airport. I don't know. And maybe they did try and ask for um, a different seat at the ticket counter and it was denied. And they might have asked at the um, at the gate and it was denied. And they thought, well, maybe we'll try it one last time. And that could be a possibility, but I don't blame the passenger for refusing to give up his seat because he clearly paid for that seat for a reason. One of the big things I noticed, of course, because of all the problems with uh, with luggage, everyone's bringing carry-on these days. But that also means that everything's very crowded on the plane, people coming on with these huge bags. So what is the etiquette around your carry-on luggage? Are you allowed to stuff it in a seat aisle that's not yours when you get on the plane? Because that's always a real annoyance for people. That is an annoyance. And so I, I see that all the time. Not only was I a flight attendant, but I fly a lot for my job. And I see people get boarding the plane and putting their bags in first class. And then they're seated in 42A. <laughs> <laughs> it is it, clever. It is clever. It's just but still. wrong. It's just yeah. wrong. So 
uh, common sense will tell you you should keep your bags with you. Now, there are circumstances where you might board the plane later and all the bins are full. That happens quite frequently. And in that case, usually you have to tag your bag at the door and it is put in the belly of the plane. Uh, and that happens quite frequently. Or uh, if if it can, if it's a smaller bag, it can fit under the seat. But now the seats are so small that there's hardly any room for a handbag. So I would just say prior planning prevents poor performance. So if Indeed. you know you have a carry-on bag, don't wait until the last minute to get on that airplane. You get on when they call your your row or your section and don't get to the airport late because you now you're putting everybody at an inconvenience, including yourself. Yeah, that's my trick. I always try to anticipate when my zone is going to get called to sort of roll right in at the beginning. So I know that my seat, because of the way the zoning works, that I know above my seat, will there be enough room for my little suitcase? And that, that brings me to just the size of the seats now. It is it is ludicrous when you look at it. When you get on those planes, it's so – and I'm not a big person, but man, those seats are small – Putting your seat back. I've kind of stopped putting my seat back these days because I just figure, you know, maybe a little bit, but there's just not enough room anymore. What is the etiquette of putting your seat back? Because some people just sit down and then they recline and they recline right onto your lap these days. <laughs> well, the seats were obviously designed to recline for a reason, and that's to give you a little bit of comfort. So everyone has the right to recline. However, if it's meal time or you know the person behind you is trying to get some work done and has a computer on his or her tray table, that's probably not the best time to recline. So I would always suggest that when you're having a meal or even a snack, that you keep your seat upright. And if if you do recline, just do it gently. Don't just swing back. Uh, look back a little bit before you start to recline and make sure that the person behind you does not have a laptop or something on his tray table and and recline gently. Yeah, this isn't, yeah, this isn't the old days. I remember I'm old enough to remember when flying was actually quite comfortable regardless of where you sat and you could easily recline and leave enough room for the person behind you to still feel comfortable. But these days, if someone slams their seat back or, or reclines fully right into you, it really feels like they're sitting on your lap. It really does. <laughs> it, it really does. Yes. Um, a few other things. I mean, I don't know what your pet peeves are. Taking your shoes off is is one of mine. I'm like, why would you take, you wouldn't take your shoes off at a restaurant. Why are you taking your shoes off on a plane? I totally agree with you. That is one of my pet peeves. If you're going to be on a long flight, bring a pair of socks or bring a pair of slippers or something. I will tell you, having worked for the airlines, I know how filthy those floors are. They never get cleaned ever. And just because there's liquid on the floor does not mean that's water. It could be <laughs> something else. So for sanitary reasons, for your own safety, it's best that you either keep your shoes on or wear a pair of socks. 
That is that is good to know. Any other advice for passengers in these heated times, um, given your experience and just in, in terms of how to get the most out of, out of a flight like that? I realize it's crowded these days. There's not a lot of flexibility about being able to move, being able to get more leg room. It's crowded in there. But what would you suggest when, when people get on planes these days, but especially with the staff, because the staff can often be very helpful if only you ask politely? Yes, I agree. I believe that you should always pack your manners along with you. Arrive early because there are going to be delays. And so you need to anticipate all of these delays because if you get to the gate and you're stressed out, then that makes for a very unenjoyable flight. So I would just suggest that you respect those around you when you're wearing, um, when you're listening to music or a movie or something like that, always wear your earphones so that you don't disturb other people. Keep your voice to a low conversational tone if you're having a, a conversation with a seatmate. And don't bring really smelly foods on the plane. That's another pet peeve of mine. Bringing anything with a lot of onions and garlic you're in an enclosed environment and the smells permeate as well. So try to, of course, you have to bring your own food nowadays because they don't serve them on the, this is true. On the plane. This is so, true. Uh, but you can choose wisely or eat before you get on the plane or something. I'm just giving you suggestions, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I would also say just keep the lavatories clean. I can't believe the, the lavatories that I've seen in the past, paper everywhere. Um, it It's disgusting. So it is. It just is. Tr- treat it as if it's uh, maybe not your own home because some people uh, don't treat their homes very well either. But just be mindful that other people have to use that space. Jacqueline Whitmore, um, thank you for all your insight on this, uh, both between etiquette and flying. A perfect mix, a perfect insight. Thanks so much. Thank you. We've been asking you what your favorite Bond film is tonight. Maybe your favorite Bond soundtrack song, your favorite Bond, your favorite Bond villain. Let me know. 877-399-9898 is the text line. 877-399-9898. Hard to say my favorite, but we'll have to go with the first one that got me started. Live and Let Die. Great music and action. Um, we mentioned that. It's it's true. The first one you saw often has a special place in your Bond memory. Mine was Moonraker, which is often considered one of the worst Bond movies. Um, but it was, I loved it at the time. I thought it was, I mean, it was the first one you see and it's, you know, they they are spectacular when you're when you're young of course and when you're older as well i still watch them favorite bond movie the spy who loved me another good one from the 70s you had a lot of roger moore tonight roger moore george lazenby have been the two that have uh, <laughs> that are in front here when it comes to favorite bond listen we're talking about this tonight because there was a milestone this week in london dr no marked 60 years since its release way back in october of 1962 in britain it came out a little bit later in North America. Uh, playing the leading role, Agent 007, was an unknown actor at the time, Sean Connery, uh, as the Ian Fleming novels landed on the big screen for the first time. I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. When you carry a double O number, it means you're licensed to kill, not get killed. Welcome to 
to Jamaica, Mr. Bond. News of my arrival leaked. Who are you working for? We didn't advertise it. What else do we know about this Chinese gentleman? Nothing except his name, Dr. No. I'm a member of Spectre. World domination. Same old dream. Why is he still alive? Same old dream, world domination. Uh, I mean, it's really the rinse and repeat plot of just about every Bond movie, isn't it? But it certainly worked, and it certainly worked back in 1962. Uh, apparently, American uh, distributors thought it wouldn't be a success. You know, it was very different from the books. Bond was very different. Connery was very different, much uh, more rugged, much rougher than the uh, sort of suave Bond of Ian Fleming's novels. Um but yeah, a lot has changed since then, too. Uh, needless to say, the new Bond movies are a reflection of this time, and the old ones were a reflection of a very different era. Well, joining me now to talk about the 60th anniversary of Dr. No, someone who was just in London to celebrate uh, the 60 years, lots of events going on there, is Marie Gillespie. He's the managing editor of James Bond Canada. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. It's a pleasure to be with you. 60 years. It flies by, doesn't it? But uh, Dr. No, I mean, it's hard to overstate just how much of an impact the movie had 60 years ago this year. I I think it's still obviously relevant uh, as a series, uh, you know, that people are, you know, still interested. Um, Dr. No is a, a wonderful film, obviously, Sean Connery's first. And uh, they, they mark it each year with October 5th, which is known as Global James Bond Day. And uh, yeah, I literally just got back from London on Global James Bond Day. I landed on Wednesday the 5th after attending some great events and uh, seeing all of our friends from the Global Bond community. And uh, yeah, everything everything about Bond is still relevant. I mean, people are still talking about it and everyone's clamoring at, you know, who's the next Bond? So if you've Indeed. never watched Dr. No... Uh, definitely give it a watch because it's it's a film that is that is view worthy. It's must see TV. Yeah, I, I've always been really interested in in Doctor No because so much of what happened afterwards seems so obvious. I mean, the Bond character became the Bond that we know today. But when when Doctor No came out, first of all, Connery was Sean Connery was a very brave choice. No one really knew who he was. Um, the Americans didn't think it would work, and it did. Um, it broke a lot of broke a lot of boundaries, or at least it broke a lot of uh, preconceived notions about what could work as an action film. I think that's absolutely true. And uh, you're you're spot on with the fact that, you know, they didn't know that it was going to be the global success that was the Bond phenomenon of the 60s. I mean, you've seen the footage of, you know, Sean Connery, by the time they got to the third movie, Goldfinger, I mean, they absolutely knew they had hit a home run. And, and you know, their, the DB5 was, you know, was the toy for Christmas. And Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger was warbling on every radio. And it really absolutely, to me, epitomizes the quintessential invention of the spy genre. Because it was a British uh, production, um, Dr. No uh, didn't actually open in America until the spring of 1963. Right. And so we celebrate Global James Bond Day as the release in the UK by the time they got to the spring of 1963, when From Russia With Love was released. Um, they then released that in uh, America in 1964 in the spring. And once they figured out that they, you know it was going to work, uh, North Americans were very lucky in 1964 because we got two Bond movies. We got From Russia With Love in the spring, Goldfinger at Christmas. And then from then on, uh, they've been released the same year 
all around the world. Yeah, no, no, they, they've, uh, you know, I've read the books. The books were popular in England, obviously. Um, and Sean Connery, the James Bond on the big screen was not really, uh, wasn't completely unlike Ian Fleming's 007, but it was a different character, a, a more a grittier character, a more working class character to use the lingo of the time. Why was that? And, and it, it worked, right? I mean, it w- probably wouldn't have worked if he had been more sort of upper class and reserved. Well, I think you're right there. And and I think that Fleming, uh, the Fleming books are, you know, fantastic to read, but they are, you know, they're not for, a, if we'd call it today, PG audience, you know, they were quite uh, graphic, uh, quite violent, and uh, many people just really poo-pooed them. But I, I think that Fleming had a double approach to it, that he took the material from his days of the war and British intelligence to kind of create the character and probably lived a little bit vicariously through his writing, but still separated the idea from, you know, making it an autobiography, <laughs> which wouldn't really work, to that, as he said, you know, a, a a blunt instrument of the British Secret Service. I mean, the man is an assassin. He smokes too much. He drinks too much. He revels too much. And I think that, obviously, in today's days of social awareness, there may be moments uh, when you view a Bond movie from the 60s or the 70s that uh, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be appropriate now. No. But if you remove that individual scene or that individual remark from the movie and look at it as a period piece. You understand that, you know, I mean, if you watch Mad Men and you see the men in the office, you know, uh, doing little swaps and, you know, chasing right. skirts, and you understand that in the 60s, that type of thing was not only acceptable, but prevalent. So I think you have to give uh, the writing itself a little bit of a break and understand that the Bond movies come from source material. It's not just pulled out of the ether. Yeah, one of the one of those factors as well is there's a Canadian connection to Dr. No. I often forget this, but Dr. No uh, was played by a Canadian actor. Canadian actor Joseph Wiseman. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We've always we've always thought that uh Eon Productions and the producers, Michael Wilson and Barbara Broccoli, mm-hmm. uh, in a way have a very close relationship uh, with Canada and certainly an affinity. And if you watch those three movies back to back, you'll actually see a Canadian connection in all three. I believe the most, the most, the biggest connection to Canada that people would remember was, of course, Miss Lois Maxwell. Right. Miss uh, Maxwell. Used to be a Canadian journalist and wrote uh, for, for many, many years. And of course, the opening sequence of The Spy Who Loved Me uh, from 1977 was filmed in uh, Baffin Island in Canada and what is now Nunavut in uh, Ayutthaya National Park. Wow. But the that's first right. three Bond movies, Dr. No, From Russia with Love, and Goldfinger, in the opening sequence of From Russia with Love, you'll see them playing the chess match. Only you'll notice the, the opponent is against McAdams from Canada. Right. You'll also see in Goldfinger as uh, Bond wakes up on the jet and meets Honor Blackman, Pussy Galore, for the first time. Says, where are we? Says, we're 35,000 feet above Newfoundland. Yeah. And of course, I think that the biggest one, of course, is uh, the best, biggest and the best is in Thunderball when uh, when Bond suggests that he goes to the Bahamas to chase Domino. And uh, instead, M tells him that he's been assigned to Station C. Wow. I, I, you know, you're right. I hadn't, I'd forgotten about that. Uh... 
My guest this half hour is Murray Gillespie. He's with James Bond Canada. We're talking about uh, the 60th anniversary of Dr. No, which was celebrated this uh, October the 5th, just a few days ago. Uh, Murray was in London to uh, to mark that. It looked like a great time. You met Shirley Bassey, too. There's a photo of you and Shirley Bassey. So some real um, Olivia Dabo was there, I guess, and uh, some, some, some Bond, the, the Bond royalty to some extent was there with you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always wonderful to attend uh, Bond events, and uh, there are so many facets to uh, James Bond. There are the um, uh, the brands that associate themselves with the movies who uh, will release uh, things specifically for the anniversary, whether it be Bollinger Champagne or Omega Watches. Uh, there's always something uh, great to see. Um, there were some wonderful screenings uh, the, from the British Film Institute. They had uh, some of the Bond cars uh, sitting out front and uh, then of course um, on uh, Tuesday night October 4th uh, there was the Bond uh, the Sound of 007 the tribute Bond 60 uh, 60th anniversary concert uh, David Arnold, uh, Hans Zimmer uh, Lulu sang The Man with the Golden Gun Shirley mm-hmm. Bass uh, obviously doing Goldfinger and Diamonds Are Forever, uh, Shirley Manson and uh, and Garbage uh, were there. So uh, you're many, many, many stars from yesteryear from uh, from the Bond movies. You know, Katarina Marino from Casino Royale was there. Lynn Holly Johnson from um, uh, For Your Eyes Only was there. Luciana Paluzzi from Thunderball was there. So it's uh, it was wonderful, but uh, certainly a highlight for me uh, was being able to ex- uh, attend the British Film Institute screening of the new documentary called right. The Sound of 007, both of which are the documentary and uh, the concert are available to watch on Amazon Prime. So cool. And uh, during the production, the uh, the producers uh, and their research team reached out to uh, James Bond Canada, um, and they know that we have one of the largest memorabilia collections in the country. And so they reached out to us and said, well, I, I bet you would have some pretty interesting musicals type of memorabilia why don't you send us a, a few items yeah so we did that. And, tell me uh, tell, tell me about those I, I, people would be curious to know i know you have this huge collection uh, what are some of the, the the treasures what are some of the treasures in there well i mean i've got uh you know some of the the very early books and catalogs from uh, the many Christie's auctions. The Christie's 60th anniversary auction was another thing that happened in London, and they've raised over £7 million uh, for various British charities. Michael Wilson of Barbara Block, the Neon Productions, have always been very generous with their their time and their money. Um, I've got probably the largest James Bond poster collection in the country. Um, some extremely rare uh, memorabilia for uh, early press screenings from the 1960s and the 70s, musical memorabilia of, uh, you know, Bond on vinyl, and then all sorts of little uh, trinkets from, you know, little toy cars to uh, to mugs and, uh, and and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, the, the, the collection is is uh, is is quite quite enormous, but I, yeah. I must say that when they reached out to us for content for the documentary that uh, did not actually land on the cutting room floor, okay. Variety magazine created a 1987 20th anniversary issue uh, celebrating the 25th anniversary of James Bond and John Barry, as he gracefully stepped away from the franchise, created a very nice ad uh, thanking Cubby and the producers for his involvement. Uh, and so, if you watch the Sound of or 7 documentary, you will see that in at about an hour and four minutes. And uh, so when the credits roll at the end, we were very happy and very proud that uh, we got a credit in the documentary. Nine-year-old me uh, was very, very happy sitting in that theater that day. And director Whitecross was very gracious with his time and gave us an opportunity to talk with him about the documentary. 
Yeah, I interviewed Monty Norman actually a while, many oh. years ago when I was in London. He passed this past year. Was, was he celebrated at all this year? Um, there's a lot of things in the documentary that they uh, celebrate. Um, they talk about, you know, how the music came about and and how it was not even for uh, a Bond movie. It was That's kind right. of a Caribbean, uh, sort of a Caribe reggae type theme with some very odd lyrics. And uh, there's so many urban legends uh, surrounding the Bond music. And it's it's really great to watch and, and hear it. I think people are going to be, you know, really surprised, like the, the end note of Tom Jones is Thunderball, where, you know, John Barry basically said, look, you're going to have to hold this note. The music's going to play for quite a while. Hold it as long as you can. And, you know, Tom Jones said the room was spinning and he's seeing double and he had to hang on to the to the, the side of the studio booth because he nearly passed out singing the last, the last yeah. note. And it's like, great job. We got it. <laughs> yeah, oh, perfect. Yeah, for listeners, for Monty Norman wrote the James Bond theme, essentially. Yeah. That, that's him. So that was that's where I was going with this. Uh, some rapid fire questions for you, because we always ask these questions and, and you know, you don't have to commit to them, but um, I'll, I'll answer along with you. So um, best theme song? Goldfinger. I think that's a great choice. I like, I like, uh, I always really like Live and Let Die. So that, uh, that'll be mine. Um, best villain? Adolfo Celli as Emilio Largo in Thunderbolt. That's a good one. That's a good one. I went with Jaws, and Jaws wasn't a great villain, but it's the one I remember the first from or Drago from Moonraker. Um, mm-hmm, first, first, first Bond movie you saw because that's where I was going with that. Nineteen seventy-seven. I was nine years old. The Spy Who Loved Me. Wow, that's a good one. I was uh, I was also nine, but mine was Moonraker two years later in nineteen seventy-nine, I guess, or early nineteen eighty. I saw Moonraker and loved it, even though it's probably one of the least least loved Bond films. Um, Best Bond film. I know that's a tough one. You know what? I, I'm still going to have to say Goldfinger. Yeah, Goldfinger is a great one, isn't it? Yeah. People often talk about, you know, who's your favorite Bond. I don't think you can put it in a capsule like that. Because to me, that third outing of Connery, the song, the music, the villain, it's still still, still perfect. But uh, Daniel, some of the Daniel Craig fam- films, uh, you know, like top three, because again, Roger Moore, I grew up with him and was the first one I saw. So 1977 Spy Who Loved Me is still a, uh, 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 like a number two and probably one of the Daniel Craig, either Skyfall, No Time to Die or Spectre, probably in my top three. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, my one of my early, early favorites, obviously, uh, Moonraker or For Your Eyes Only, because those was the first ones I saw. I remember the excitement when For Your Eyes Only came out, knowing that there was a, I was old enough to be aware that there was a new Bond film coming, because they used to put them at the end, right? Bond will be back in X and Y. And I thought, wow, isn't that great? That's, There's another one. One of the best things of the yesteryear, before the advent of the internet, mm-hmm. now at the end of a Bond film and at the end of No Time to Die, everyone knows the franchise is on hiatus right now, but James Bond will return. But not many, unless you were in the know, you didn't wait. And that was the best part. I mean, obviously, you know, as well, you say going to Free Eyes Only, probably you were so excited probably because you probably got to go by yourself. It wasn't a PG anymore. Yeah. You could go and see it by yourself, which was great. And then waiting until the end of For Your Eyes Only and the very the very 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 last credit where it would say james bond will return in octopussy and then you felt somehow that you were ahead of the rest of the pack that you knew that the next movie was going to be called such and such fantastic yeah, yeah you knew it was coming so yeah so when i was young and then so for a long time live and let die was my favorite and now i really really liked casino royale i i don't know why i really liked casino royale but it's hard i mean they're all it's hard to to justify it's hard to pick a best one isn't it 
Yeah. And Easy I guess the worst one though. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, tell me about that. What is the worst one? Die another day. Yeah. Die another day was terrible. <laughs> it was it was they they just couldn't i actually watched that not that long ago good theme song though i kind of always like the theme song to it last, last one best bond best bond i guess that's always the inevitable question you, you just mentioned that it's tough to answer but best bond for me it's still recovery yeah I'd, I'd agree i'd agree i mean you, you, you can't have any of the other ones without him right i don't i don't think you can well there you go uh marie gillespie Thank you so much for your time tonight. It's been fascinating to talk Bond with uh, James Bond Canada. Thank you so much for your time, Ben. Have a, a great uh, weekend and happy Thanksgiving to uh, to you and to all the Bond fans out there in Canada. A new biography of the late celebrity chef and TV star Anthony Bourdain is out next week, and it's causing quite the stir. I don't know if you've seen the reviews. Um Called Down and Out in Paradise, The Life of Anthony Bourdain, it dives into his life, but specifically looks at how the outwardly successful and inwardly tumultuous years um, that led up to Bourdain taking his own life in France while on location for his CNN show in June of 2018. It is a tale of love and fame, success and insecurity, addiction and betrayal, and it paints a picture of Bourdain through 80 interviews and documents, texts, email exchanges sourced from Bourdain's phone and laptop, but it's also one that Members of, his fam- members of his family, or at least his brother, have already called hurtful and defamatory. Well, joining me now is Charles Learson. He's a journalist, the former executive editor of Sports Illustrated, and author of several books, including Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw, and the upcoming Down and Out in Paradise, The Life of Anthony Bourdain. Thank you so much for your time. Welcome to the show tonight. Oh, happy to be here with you. There is such an enduring fascination with Anthony Bourdain. In fact, even in, while he was alive, there was a fascination with Anthony Bourdain. Why do you think that is? And, and what drove you to to want to write about it? Yes, it, you know, it's a very good question right off the bat, because I, I had to, I had to kind of wrestle with this uh, kind of early on in my process. Uh, uh, you know, he he was a, a presenter, a host of a, of a TV travel show. He was a writer too, book writer and article writer. But but it was as a, a, a TV personality that he he gained fame and and he was he was <laughs> he it, what to call him is a good question because he didn't want to be called a journalist he wanted to be called a storyteller mm-hmm. but I think the secret of his success was just some kind of irrational chemical uh, thing between him and the audience you know we can't it's like when you when you meet the person you're going to marry or something you know you <laughs> there's no there's no explaining it there's just you just know it's there and uh, he had that uh connection and he made that connection to a to, to a degree uh that's kind of astounding there's so many people uh who thought who felt that that he was their friend some of them, not all of them are delusional. Some of them just, just recognize that as a sort of a, a feeling, but, but that was the feeling he, he sort of engendered in people. And, and I think that was the secret of his success. Yeah. Did you feel the same way? Were you a fan? I was, yeah, I couldn't help but be, you know, I, I, I loved the way he looked, the way he carried himself. And it was one of my big surprises to find out uh, as I did the book that he was actually rather very awkward Several people pointed that out to me. He was he was very tall, six foot four. I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but people would say, you know, he wasn't. I, I say in the book, you, it, it's true. After all, you can't imagine Anthony Bourdain dancing. You know, he he, he he wasn't he 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 as good as he looked in clothes and walking down a street in, in India or or New Jersey. Uh, he 
uh, he he was he was an awkward fellow. Yeah, I, I I think part of maybe the appeal, at least that I felt watching it, is that is that you sort of watched him struggle to be to find himself. I know that sounds very trite, but there was something engaging about him because you sort of sensed that he was on this journey and you were with him for it. I think that you know that's kind of how I felt about watching the show and so forth. You set off to write this book. Um, it's not always easy to write a biography to go from the blank page to the finished product. Clearly. Um, what were you hoping to discover when you set, when you set out on this? To, what, what did you want to learn about Anthony Bourdain? Well, I, I guess I wanted to learn what a lot of people uh, seem to want to learn is like how the guy with the best job in the world and seemingly the best life in the world in a way, how, how he came to take his own life. Uh, and my interest in that is, is I, I, I think it I think it's fairly common. That's what people will say something like that. And, and, it's, it has to do with the human condition, you know, wondering about the human condition. What is it about us that, uh, you know, as I say in the book, that the, which celebrities are kind of crash test dummies for the rest of us. They live life at a, at a faster speed. They have more of everything, more money, more fame, more power, more good looks, more, uh, you know, sex. And, 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 uh, and, 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 they, and then we watch, we look at them and we see, how that affects them. And very often it doesn't, uh, it's not, not for the positive. And if I may add, I think we find that reassuring to a degree that you can have all these things and still not be happy, that happiness is, is something else. Yeah, I don't think I've ever spoken his name to anyone who didn't think, well, he had the best job. And I'll be honest with you, I mean, I, I did nothing like Anthony Bourdain, but I spent time on the road working as a journalist. It's lonely. Mm-hmm. It's lonely to wake up in hotel rooms by yourself all the time right. and be out and about. And I think that may have been a fallacy of his life, that in fact, it seemed from your book, at least, that he was lonely, complicated, very complicated story, but that he was, in fact, uh, you know, struggling deeply, struggling deeply in those final years. Yeah, he he, he worked himself to a point uh, where, as I say early in the book, he pushed people away. He, he, he got, he, he, he worked himself to a point where he was really unhappy and was pushing other people away. And I think that's sort of, you know, it's been said by wiser people than than me that, that other people are both are, are, well, Sartre said hell is other people, but other people are also, also this, also this, the secret of happiness, you know, our relationships and all. And he was, he was, he was pushing people away until the point where when he died, there was, there was no one in his life who, who had the role of kind of the person who plans your funeral. And uh, as a result, he's he he never had a funeral. He's he's never been laid to rest in any kind of formal way, either publicly or privately. How did you manage to to delve into this past? Because you know there have been other things written since his his death. There have been there's been a movie, and a lot of it's pretty um, pretty positive. Uh, how did you manage to to delve into some of the different parts, the, some of the stories we hadn't heard? Well, I hope my book is is positive and generally positive because he's. If, if he's not an intriguing and admirable man, I don't know why we'd want to spend, you know, a book length talking about him. But but it it it, it yeah, I, I I I came at it. I didn't spend I, I've seen the movie once and um, I read Kitchen Confidential probably 14 times. So I, th- th- there were there were different sources that I delved into more that are already existing sources. But I wanted to I wanted to get my own story. So I wanted to talk to 
uh, people that had known him, uh, people who were characters in the book Kitchen Confidential. I say that it was a work of nonfiction, yet there were personalities in the book and people in the book. I, I wanted to seek them out, the ones that were still living, and and find out about them. And and I wanted to I wanted to talk to you know intimate uh, uh, family members, lovers, uh, ex wives, and uh, and. And, and and that's eventually what I did over the course of two or three years. It was, in a way, traditional biography making. Yeah, yeah. You relied on some newer forms of of communication, like text messages and emails, and so on. I guess you pointed out that these are the are the letters. You know, we used to biographies used to rely on people's correspondence, and this is just modern correspondence, right? Right. As I as I researched the book over the course of several years, I. I was I managed to obtain these texts and emails, and um, uh, th- I didn't get them surreptitiously or in any sneaky way, and uh, and they they were given to me, and um, uh, I'm, I'm not about to say no to that, and um, and and you know people have some people have said oh he looked at his phone and his laptop well, you know that's where the texts and emails are stored. In the old days, you know, you'd find letters tied up in a ribbon in a box under the bed, which also seems pretty personal, but, but, and they were, you know, and we, we, you know, we, we care about Emily Dickinson's letters and Abraham Lincoln's letters and even Judy Garland's letters. And why, why not Anthony Bourdain's? You, you took a lot of time to look into, I guess, the one issue that everyone talks about, which was the tumultuous final years, because it felt like he had never been better in terms of his success. Um, you know, that he could have taken that career anywhere at that point and instead decided to end his life. And you looked into that, those tumultuous two years leading up to that. What did you find? I mean, it, it's an impossible question to answer, I imagine. But what did you end up finding out about uh, those final years? Well, I, I found out, you know, in a way, a lot of things. And but, you, you know, a, a human being is not a jigsaw puzzle that you fill in all the pieces and then you step back and say, ah, or it's not a puzzle you solve. You just you find out a lot of you find a lot of things and some of them are contradictory and some of them are uh, hard, hard to figure out what they mean. But I, 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 I he was certainly someone who who hit a peak of happiness that he. He sort of uh, put a marker down on his show on a it was an episode filmed in Sardinia and he had just uh, recently married his his wife uh, Octavia and and he had a child and the, and and he, and he was meeting his wife's family for the first time in Sardinia they they, they had a connection there and, and he was having a wonderful time and he said at the end of the episode he said what what happens when all your dreams come true what do you do he didn't know what to do. Uh, when all his dreams came true, uh, he he had a hard time being happy, I guess, you know, and uh, uh, he, he, you know, in, in my book, we hit that point and then you turn the page and in the next chapter, he's he's on to the next, he's on to his final girlfriend uh, with whom he had a very difficult relationship. And uh, it's, it's, you know, he had a, he was, he had a big problem with alcohol and I, in my personal experience and, and maybe in research bears this out uh people who have a problem with alcohol have a hard time sort of sitting still either figuratively or literally they they they're jumpy and they sometimes want to move on to the next thing all, all the time and and he was certainly like that and uh so he he couldn't he couldn't sort of relax and, and stay in a state of of happiness he had to keep he had a, he was sort of he was also addicted to to being busy i think so mm-hmm. he, he he went he went he, he went back on the road after he's his marriage, he, he made this good marriage, went back on the road in the distance, 
that the that creates. He was he was traveling 250 days a year. That's very hard on a marriage. And it, sure enough, it it wore out his good marriage and it led him to his final girlfriend. Uh, the reception of it has been, I mean, it, it, there are those who are upset by this. Did you expect that? Um, I, I, I didn't think about it too much, you know, and, and, and the people who are upset, uh, I haven't met an upset person with, with one exception, his brother, uh, uh, Tony's brother, who, who is upset and, and has read the book uh, uh, so far. So uh, people are uh, are expressing their opinions, uh, uh, you know, without having read the book. I don't really care too much about about that. And and um, I, I wrote a biography, and uh, uh, I, I, it's, it's it's the story of his whole life from birth to the end. I, I, if you you know, I say to some people, if if you don't, if you're not curious the way I was about how this man who had the best job in the world came to take his own life, that's that's okay. And and if you or if you want to just remember, stop him halfway through the life at that point, like in Sardinia that I mentioned, where he said, what do you do when all your dreams come true? And remember that Anthony Bourdain and not know about the rest. That's if you're that kind of person, go for it. You knock yourself out. I, 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 I don't relate to that kind of person, not the sort of person I would want to have a beer with. I, uh, I'm curious about, and I think probably most people are curious about life and the human condition and, 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 and what happens, what happens, what, what happens, to our friends, even our even our imaginary friends like Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, he always used to end his shows, and you just pointed out the perfect example of it with uh, what do you do when all your dreams come true. He used to always end his show with sort of a synopsis, a, a wise thought, something to, to that you, the viewer or reader would walk away with. For your book, what do you think that is? What do you think that that BOMO, the closing word, is uh, for, for this one? Well... It may be the Buddhist lesson that life is difficult, uh, but but that's that's the bad news and the good news uh, that it's a struggle, a continual struggle. Even 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 when you're Anthony Bourdain, even when you have wealth and good looks and success and love, he had so much love uh, in the world. So many people loved him, uh, and uh, um, it, it, he it, it's a struggle. And, uh, it, you know, you got to cut yourself some slack and give yourself a break and and uh, and not wear yourself out. I think he, he he physically exhausted himself and then he was taking in the vast amounts of alcohol, which is a, a drug that, that further exhausts you. And uh, I, in, in a way, that's one very mundane explanation for his ending, I think. Yeah. And, and, and I guess readers will 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 see a different kind of Bourdain than maybe, I mean, I guess that's always the struggle with writing a biography about someone who people feel like they know is that you reveal things about them that maybe people didn't want to know. And that's always the, that's always the challenge, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. I can't, I can't apologize or change who he was. You know, I just present him as best I can as who he was. And I think he was a hell of an interesting guy. Yeah. I mean, do you think he would have liked the book? Do you think he would have, he would have approved of the way it was approached and and the way that it was relatively, um, you know, it, it was it's raw, right? Right. Certain certain friends and family members have told me he would have liked it, and 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 um, uh, you, you know, and, and he was a guy who who was all about cutting through the BS and letting the the chips fall where they may, you know. And he, when 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 
Anthony Bourdain traveled. He never went through the official travel agencies of these countries, except maybe one or two instances when he absolutely had to in Iran or someplace. Mm-hmm. He, 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 didn't, he didn't do the he didn't do the authorized version of anything. He wasn't an authorized kind of guy. So I think he might have appreciated a, a sometimes raw and unauthorized biography. That's, I hope, done with respect and, and well constructed. Well, Charles Learson, thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, it looks like it comes out uh, next week. So congratulations. Thanks so much. 